Hello and welcome to the first ever live recording of The Expert Factor. I'm Milo Hines, producer of the show, and um, today we've got an excellent panel alongside us. Now, back in 2016, a certain government minister said that the people of this country had had enough of experts. It will probably come as no surprise that in the world of policy wonks, uh, we beg to differ. And so today I'm delighted to introduce The Expert Factor. We have Paul Johnson, Anna Menon, Hannah White, and special guest, Adam Fleming. and welcome to this first ever live recording of The Expert Factor, the new podcast from the Institute for Government, UK and a Changing Europe, and the Institute for Fiscal Studies. So let's introduce ourselves. I'm Hannah White. I'm Director of the Institute for Government. I'm Arnon Menon, Director of UK and a Changing Europe. And I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. And today, for the first time ever, we are joined on the podcast by a special guest. And I'm delighted that that guest is Adam Fleming, presenter of the BBC's Newscast podcast. Hit, hit podcast. Hit, hit. Yeah, that's yes. contractually obliged. Um, also, can I just say, I've just sat down at this table and in front of me is an Institute for Government notepad that's got lines on it, almost like a sort of exam paper. Yeah. Is this, you do I have to be, fill this in? You will be Should tested. I, okay, I'll start now. I'll yes. start now. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for having do me. Do take Thank notes. Thank you. Um, so, as the... As, uh, all our listeners, and we have an ever-growing number of them, I'm pleased to say, uh, know The Expert Factor is the podcast for people who haven't had enough of experts. Every week, we take a step back and tackle the big questions facing government and British politics. And this year, it could be a huge year for British politics. We think it's not easy always to get past the spin, the rouse, the bias, the posturing, to really work out what on earth is going on. And we think that people want to know, and that's why we put this podcast together. Thank Adam, I wanted to pick your brain as really the sort of uh, expert on podcasts here. We're just the new, new kids on the block. It's very weird for me being a veteran. Like, I've never <laughs> been a veteran. You are the veteran before. in yeah. this context. So we're all looking up to you and going Thank to you. hang on your every word. Um, we have seen a lot of new podcasts mm. this year. Some of them even feature women. <laughs> um, but do you think that Laura Kunzberg was a founder member of the Brexit cast family, remember? And is, so. There were a lot of there were a lot of pairs of men talking to each other. Right? Yes, yes. Often very interestingly. But anyway, um, do you think this is proof that people want to get past the headlines and actually sort of understand a bit more what's going on, or is it? Oh, totally. Well, the first thing to say is that it's very exciting to be working in a in a growing market, like as you as you've discovered, like there is there is space for everybody. And because most people in Britain haven't listened to a podcast yet, that means the potential for further growth is is really good. And working in mainstream media, where the story is a lot of decline, that's 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 quite exciting. But the even more exciting thing is is as you were alluding to there, it proves people want depth, detail and nuance. And so we have a little dashboard that shows the average listening time on an episode of Newscast. And it's definitely up in the top 20-something minutes. And so that's people listening to, for example, the episode that we're recording today. The first 20 minutes of that is a really detailed discussion about Yemen and the Houthis and the military action. Um, and people will, will listen to that, and they will get so much more than if you're just scanning the website or listening to the, the news bulletin in the morning. And we've also learned that the BBC as a whole, from the kind of the Brexit cast experience, that the audiences love hearing you showing you're working as a journalist. 
And one of the things that people used to keep saying to me, Chris, Laura, and Catcher during the Brexit cast days was, it's really exciting to hear you trying to work out the answer to something you don't know, as opposed to being this know-it-all who stands outside Parliament or outside the European Commission telling it like it is, actually just going, oh, I'm not sure. Do you think that comment by Michel Barnier meant that? Well, actually, no, it reminds me of something that he said two months ago. And if you put it together, and people loved hearing us just kind of joining the dots in real time. And, and that's, that's what you guys have been doing as well. And also, you just get all this amazing quality advice for free. And I'm just thinking, how much is George Osborne paid by that bank? And actually, you can listen to him now twice a week on his podcast, saying all the same stuff for free. I have to say, when people tell us that they tell me that they enjoy the RFG podcast or this podcast, I always feel slightly alarmed because you really do just feel like you're sitting in a room chatting to your colleagues or you know, having the discussion you would have exactly as yeah. you say about you know, what's going on this week, what do we think that means, what's happening. And then people say, oh, I really enjoy the podcast. And I think, my goodness, there are 10,000 people listening to us. Yeah, and also what, the other thing is, it's like, so there's, there's two things that people, I think, discount a bit about podcasts because they just take it for granted. Number one is just it, they're very user-friendly. They are there at the click of a phone when you want it. So uh, straight away, that's just more... <laughs> more user-friendly than a news bulletin on at a certain time or a website where you've got to like scroll through lots of stuff that you might not be interested in. And second of all, yeah, that personability, like it's, you've, you've, got to, you've got to make this stuff appealing for mm. people to, to spend time with. And I think over the last hundred years of the news, we sometimes forget that because people had a duty, felt a duty to tune in. Uh, but now you've got to make it palatable. And being, being yourselves and having a nice, heaven, heaven forbid, enjoying yourself while you're doing it, that, that, that's really infectious. And that brings people along with you. That's very important. Anna, do you think politicians have sort of fully adjusted to the world of podcasts? Do you think they all sort of get the way in which um, audiences want to interact with this sort of material? Well, former politicians certainly have. <laughs> uh, and they use it quite successfully to resuscitate reputations in some cases, I have to say. But, uh, yeah, I mean, politicians have got a lot more savvy. I mean, whether in all forms of social media. I mean, the number of politicians you now see on Instagram, and there's clearly a pressure to show that you're in your constituency a certain number of days. And podcast is part of that environment, I think. Mm -hmm. And the speed of change is quite bewildering. And I'm, I'm very, very old-fashioned and traditional, I have to say. You know, I still watch the news on the telly and I still oh, like so do watching I. things. I still like watching <laughs> things when they're on, you know. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, politics is adapting. You see that on social media, you see it on Twitter. The, uh, some adapt better than others, but they're all adapting to that whole new world and podcasts are part of it, I think. What's interesting for us is that we do get, we do get government ministers and Starmer and Rachel Reeves come on newscast regularly. Um, but you realise the format... So on the Today programme, you've got the 810 interview. They want the biggest name possible who's going to make the most news possible. And that works really well in that format of an eight to 10 minute quite combative interview. But actually, when you're on a podcast and you're having a chat about a few things with somebody for maybe 15 or 20 minutes, actually, we found it doesn't matter if they're not a front bencher or like one of the big five offices of state. Because actually, they're going to be quite constrained in what they say mm. and have great message discipline and possibly just repeat the same message over and over again for 15 minutes. Is. So actually, we've maybe got a wider pool of people that you can go and chat to. And that's why Nick Robinson's Political Thinking podcast is great, because he just picks a really interesting person to go and chat to that week about their childhood, their education, their beliefs, their values. And you get a very different kind of experience than the, the classic political interview. That is a second shout out for political thinking today. Nick Robinson's going to be very pleased with us. <laughs> um, Paul, 
one of the other things that's come up at the IFG's annual conference today, which, which we've been at and we were recording at the end of, has been this question about um, whether politicians are being sufficiently honest with the public in this election year. And it's something I know that you've talked about. Do you think that um, one of the arguments that was made earlier was that events like today, but also longer form uh, discussions with politicians and, dare I say, podcasts, might be a way to make uh, the public feel that they're getting a more honest version of what politicians want to say? Well, hopefully they get that from us, if not from the of politicians them, uh, themselves. And I was wondering when um, Adam was speaking about whether if you, if you got a, a front-rank politician relaxed for 20 minutes, whether there's more chance that they'll give something away. I mean, my... Commit news. <laughs> commit news. <laughs> uh, in my experience of being, um, being interviewed is that it's, in, in a way, it's much more scary having someone who's really put you at your ease because you have to be very careful not to... Um, yeah, not to go too far um, with that. And one has responsibilities even as a mere director of the IFS, not to um, <laughs> necessarily commit news um, at times. Um, in terms of the, um, you know, the broader question, I, I think it is partly because of the 24-hour news um, uh, feeds and so on that, it is, that politicians are so very careful all of the time. Um, and I think we're going to have an awful lot of this this year. And we, we, we've covered quite a lot of the issues during the day. I mean, the, you know, is anyone actually going to get up and say, look, guys, you know, the, the choice over the next five years is either your taxes are going up even further or your public services are going to get even worse. I mean, that is the choice that we're facing. And no one's going to get up and say it. I mean, people are going to bored brainless by me getting up and saying it over the next year. But you know, Keir Starmer is not, I don't think, going to get up and say we're going to raise taxes by 20, 30, 40 billion pounds to sort out public services. And I don't think Jeremy Hunt's going to get up and say we're going to cut <coughs> spending on public services by a whole um, by a whole bunch. And you know, that's true of all sorts of things. We had a question about immigration just before we came on to this. I mean, there are real trade-offs there. There are trade-offs about planning reform that Keir Starmer's talking about. There are big trade-offs on investment versus um, consumption and, and actually just talk it, it feels to me, I don't know whether it has got worse since Brexit, I mean the cake and eat it, the sort of if you're pro-Brexit, everything about Brexit was good, if you're anti-Brexit, everything about um, uh, Brexit was um, bad. Um, uh, it, we seem to have that uh, so in spades for, 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 for everything at the moment. I mean it was well before Brexit that we abolished boom and bust. I mean, you know, it, and I think Obviously, we want politicians to be more honest, and obviously, every single week we sit there and say this. I remember one of the back in, I think it was the 2002 French presidential election, Lionel Jospin made a speech in which he basically said, Look, globalization is rampant. There's actually very little we, your elected politicians, can do because much of this is controlled by forces outside our power to do anything about. And he literally dropped four or five percent in the polls over the next 48 hours because that just wasn't the message people were. So it's not like you can't see why they do it. I mean, they're in a tough situation. And if, mm. if politicians were to say the things yeah, I can you see, were suggesting. I can, I can see why they do. That, yeah. I mean, so it is tricky. Well, on the other hand, I mean, George Osborne was quite upfront about the fact of the need for austerity, as he saw it, ahead of the 2010 election. I mean, that was a harder message about what was going to happen to, to, to public spending. And mm -hmm. that, at the time, you know, that ended up in a okay, coalition government. But it does now feel unthinkable, only, you know, uh, 15 years on, 14 years on, that, that people would be that, that sort of 
up front. Is, is, that, a, is that a change or is that just a different set of circumstances? I mean, you had the unique circumstances of post-2008, so everyone could see the scale of the crisis. Uh, but remember, the whole thing came under the mantra, all in this together, which I think history actually has proven not to be exactly the case in terms of austerity. So there was, there was window dressing around it. It wasn't just straightforward honesty, I don't think. But yeah, I mean, but I think 2008 gave a degree of cover for this in the same way that, you know, the, the war in Ukraine, in a sense, made people more understanding, even though they suffered from a high inflation than would otherwise have been the case. But I just think we have such an amazing ecosystem now to kind of, so that we arrive at honesty, even if honesty is not the starting point. So think about the tweet saying, the asylum backlog's been cleared. Yeah. So that tweet existed in isolation at about like, what, 7.23 a.m. that day. But by 7.23 p.m., like anyone who'd paid attention to any news in whatever form, whether it was a Radio 2 news bulletin at tea time or a discussion on PM or a whole episode of Newscast or I don't know if you did a podcast that day, um, will have known there was a lot more to it than just that claim. So actually, honest, uh, we were a lot closer to honesty by the end of the day than, than that brief period. I mean, that tweet only got to live on its own it's terms for a, few, for a few minutes. But I remember thinking on that day, because the BBC website was, was quite punchy that day, and I thought, blimey, there must oh, be as some... in reporting it. As, as in as reporting as straight from the start as saying, actually, mm. let's bear in mind these four and a half thousand cases that... Uh, I mean, it's not always like that, though. Well, no, but again, that headline and that story evolved pretty quickly and in a much more nuanced way throughout, throughout the day. Yeah. So you'd think, wouldn't you, that, that if that is true, that that would iterate back into the way that politicians then choose to communicate, because they would, you would hope, think, well, this isn't going to work because the figures are out there and they, you know, somebody's going to pick us up on that. But is that too much to hope for? And this is from somebody called us by uh, Foxy earlier, crushingly naive or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that's probably true. I mean, they must do it for a reason. But, um, and also it's just there. It's, it, when we're talking about, oh, there's a, there's a thirst for depth. I mean, but at the same time, at the other end of the spectrum, things are getting more and more squished and like the... What's, what's even smaller than a bumper sticker message now, like a, like a Twitter graphic is like yeah. less than a bumper sticker, isn't it? And, you know, this isn't a room full of normal representative voters. That's the other thing. <laughs> just what, what do you mean? Just to give Nick Robinson another point, I remember before the 2017 election, he did these focus groups up in, I think it was Halifax, and he was doing them regularly, and I think it was about two or three weeks out from the election. He's sitting down with these 12 people in Halifax, and he says... And this is the point at which we were all sort of being sort of physically ill whenever we heard the phrase strong and stable because we'd heard it so much. And he said, I'm sure you're all familiar with this phrase strong and stable and none of them had heard it. Uh, so there's that as well, isn't it? Is that politicians aren't trying to get our attention. Uh, they're trying to get the attention of the normal voter. And the normal voter actually, I don't think, you know, isn't that plugged into this sort of thing. And also you then got to remember there's all these areas where politicians or political messages are being communicated where we're not hanging out in. So a local Facebook group campaigning against a low-traffic neighbourhood in a place none of us live. Who knows what sort of political messages are going on in there and that obviously is only going to sway a few people and not be decisive to any kind of result nationally. But I think this upcoming election will have to put a lot of, a lot of effort into making sure we're in places that we sort of don't naturally inhabit so we can 
see that. And I was just chatting to Mariana Springer, just information correspondent. And she does this great project on Americast, a non-Nick Robinson-sponsored podcast, <laughs> um, where she's got these undercover voters, where she's got a whole yeah. load of yeah. phones with social media profiles designed to represent different demographics in America. So you, we can all see what messages they're getting. And it is pretty scary, but then lots of things about American politics are scary. And she's working out, can you? is there a way of doing that with, with the cohort of British undercover voters so that actually we can be in that Oxford low traffic neighbourhood Facebook vigilante group. So, I, I am actually, I join it. I, I am actually, actually I live in the middle of it. There we go. <laughs> Should never make assumptions. <laughs> so speaking of... Um, she cut out any speed cameras. <laughs> no comment. Speaking of sort of campaigning tools that most people pay no attention to, Paul, manifesto is. <laughs> well, that, that, Great segue. Taking no notice of me. One thing I remember is, I can't remember which journalist it was, saying they knew that a certain politician or party had lost it when they were talking to someone on the doorstep and said, but the IFS says. And they said, <laughs> at that point, they knew that they'd lost all contact with their electorate. <laughs> I'm sure that wouldn't be true today, Paul. Um, how important do we think manifestos are now, other than to people like us who scour them eagerly? Um, well, I, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, they're useful and interesting in, in terms of things that they tell you. I mean, the last election was very odd. I mean, we had the sort of uh, the Labour manifesto, which is about a thousand pages long and had an enormous number of policies in it in huge detail. And, and had another book attached as well, didn't it, to it? <laughs> and the Conservative and manifesto yeah. with almost nothing in it at all. So, you know, manifestos can be very different things indeed, in a sense the, 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 it's almost the sort of the, the, the very high level message what the manifesto is telling you tells you much more I think than looking at a lot of the, a lot of the detail. But equally, again, when you talk to at least some politicians, they do take this pretty seriously. I mean, they don't go out there on the whole to then break um, the pledges they've put in there. They think very hard about what goes in there, well, um, you know, whether these are things they really want to do. And I think that's one of the things that slightly worries me about you. I, I suspect this time round we'll get two manifestos which look much more like the 2019 Conservative manifesto. In other words, pretty empty things um, because they're worried about putting too much um, detail um, in there. But nevertheless, I think give us some sense of um, at, least, at least direction. And I just always remember that time Philip Hammond was Chancellor and he put up the rate of national insurance contributions for the self-employed, which some people have argued is a very necessary corrective in the tax system. Um, and then on the Daily Politics budget programme, Laura Kay straight away said, oh, I've just checked the Tory manifesto. This is a breach of the manifesto. And that was when all the Tory MPs and, in fact, the government themselves realised they'd breached the manifesto and it got reversed like pretty quickly because Laura spotted it on the TV. Unbelievably stupid thing to put in your manifesto to say I'm not going to raise income tax, national insurance or VAT. Well that's two thirds of taxes that you said you're not going to increase. Well things happen that mean that you need to do that either for reasons of just making the system fair or all because you need some more money and I sincerely hope that neither party puts in their manifesto this time round we will not raise income tax, national insurance or VAT because by doing that you immediately tie both hands behind your back. But if they don't do it because it's become a thing now, right? Yeah, then they'll be they immediately there, yeah. be accused of planning tax rises. Well, and then and, you know, the, the appropriate response is, well, look, we're not planning tax rises, but we need to keep ourselves open and flexible to things that might happen in the world, as we've seen, because, um, you know, income tax rates may not have gone up, but income tax over this parliament has gone up enormously. Um, and, you know, because, not because the government's desperate to put it up, but because it's had to go up to pay for 
you know, the, the, both big increases in spending and all of the crises that we faced over the last few years. Though it gets silly at the point where you have preemptive tax cuts that are partly, I suppose, to help you do well in an election campaign, but partly just to trap your opponents when, as you expect, they're going to win. Yeah. By, or you end up like Norman Lamont in 1992, who did exactly that, and then, oh my God, they won, and then he, then he had to yeah. you know, massively reverse them. So we're going to open up it to our live audience here in a minute for questions. So do be thinking of the questions you want to ask the panel. But first, we have to deal with a question that was bequeathed to us from an earlier panel about the significance of uh, immigration and migration as a, a subject which is going to feature in this um, uh, election campaign. Adam, what do you think? What do I think about migration? Uh, I'm completely <laughs> impartial on this subject. Uh, okay, all right, that's a very open question. Um, uh, How significant I, uh, well, is it going to be? Well, I, I worry that certain issues in the election will get boiled down to your very bumper stickery versions, and you can already see that the Rwanda bill has become a proxy for everything to do with immigration, when in fact it is dealing with a certain number of people who come over to the UK in a certain way, and actually it's almost become, rather than talking about the issue in the round and all the complexities and trade-offs and difficulties and nuance and understanding numbers and distinctions between graduate <laughs> students and research students and undergrad, all that stuff, means that actually just is Rwanda getting through? Is Rwanda evil or not? It just, that just becomes our discussion. And it reminds me a little bit of Brexit, where viewing Brexit from Brussels, where it was like Bindersville and um, paragraph this and clause this, yeah. actually looking, it took me a while to realise, actually all that really mattered in the UK from day to day was whether Theresa May was surviving that day or not. And the actual negotiations and the, the, the reasons for the instability were... Were, were tertiary or quaternary or why well, I'm trying to blag those words in front of this audience um, <laughs> not 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 primary um, and so it's like actually do you just repeat those things again where like it, you, you boil it down to one thing which is so far from being a discussion of the whole as you say and very much um, sort of eliding legal and illegal migration yeah that's what, that's other, what I was getting yeah, at yeah. yeah I mean you know, the Blair government did that in the early 2000s. I mean, they were the first to sort of blur those lines. This isn't a new trick. But I think, I mean, in terms of numbers, you're right. Off the top of my head, I think, you know, asylum seekers were about 70,000 coming in last year, and there are about 1.2 immigrants coming in at the same, 1.2 million. 1.2. So, well, yeah, 1.2 million, not 1.2, <laughs> sorry. 1.2 million. So it is Andrew a very, Farage very small amount. <laughs> but actually, the politics is fascinating too, because that doesn't quite add up because whilst immigration is the number one supporter amongst reform party voters and the Tories are worried about reform, they're not, they're not the num it's not the number one priority amongst most of people who voted Tory in 2019 and don't know who they're going to vote for now. So I'm not even sure that this sort of focus on immigration is going to appeal to the section of the electorate the Tories seem to be targeting, which is what makes it really hard to understand for me. It really is a very, very narrow electoral strategy, which I suppose is why we have this stuff about the, the government pivoting to talk about the, the economy now, though I'm not quite sure they're going to be as effective at that as they think, because the Rwanda thing is going to haunt this campaign. Well, it is now. It's, I mean, yeah. the, the bill is going through and then the bill will be tested in the courts. So it's going to keep coming back, isn't yeah. it? But, but, the, and the, but the broader issue on legal migration is, yet again, you need to be clear about what the trade-offs are. I mean, you know, an extraordinary fraction of people coming into work in social care are, are, are immigrants. And 
rightly or wrongly, I mean, immigrants are propping up the university system. And to be honest, some universities have played that game. Um, and you can see why some of that's being, being cracked down on. But if you're not going to pay um, social care workers adequately, if you're not going to fund universities, then uh, and, and, and all the other sorts of um, you know, issues in public sector and, and, and skill shortages that we have, then this is the natural way in which that's going to, um, that's, that, if that circle is going to be squared. So you can't pretend that um, reducing immigration is costless. But equally, on the other hand, you can't pretend that net six or 700,000 is normal, um, mm. uh, or, or in, in, indeed for the two or 300,000 we had for a long time relative to um, where we were 20 years ago is, is, is pretty uh, unusual and has its, has its impact. So again, you, you need to be clear about what the trade-offs here are here and how you're going to do that. My sense of we haven't had anything approaching a coherent strategy for a very long time from the government, but I suspect we're not going to get a, anything approaching a terribly coherent discussion about it over the next year either. No, because the reality is that it might become normal, this sort of level, because this isn't just confined to us. It's true across... Uh, Western Europe that we have labor shortages and people are dealing with it by having uh, high levels of immigration and it's hard to avoid the sense sometimes that Asylum seekers have become the proxy we will shout about that whilst at the same time government policies is to let people yeah. in yeah um, Hannah, can I just ask you an expert question before we open up to other people? Um, with, and I'm now doing what I said we shouldn't do, which is reduce it to the Rwanda bill. Um, <laughs> but I saw in the FT yesterday, um, when I was reading on the train on the way home, that the Labour leader in the Lords, Angela Smith, has said, oh, we won't, we won't oppose this legislation. It's, we don't do that in the Lords. Mm. And then I was like, oh, hang on. I'm sure I've been reporting, oh, this legislation is going to face a real battle in the Lords. It might not happen. Was I, was I wrong to think that? And is it actually, what does that mean? So I think... What Angela Smith's trying to do is to make clear that, and this is always the case with the Lords, actually, you know, I mean, obviously there have been instances in the past, fox hunting, for example, but essentially the view taken by the Lords is we are there to refine, we are there to test, we are there to say to the, to the elected House, are you sure, do you want to think again? But at the end of the day, they won't stand in the way, they won't spin it out. Um, up into an election in order to prevent it getting onto the statute book if they think that the elected house, you know, there's clear will of the elected representatives to legislate on this front. That doesn't mean that they won't look at it in quite a lot of detail, that it won't take quite a lot longer than it did through the Commons. I mean, it's the latest example in the Commons, I think, of a bill which, um, you, you know, 10 years ago would have gone into committee for some weeks and MPs would have really thought it was their job to look at in detail mm. and actually... You know, and there were good reasons to do things in what's called committee of the whole house, when everyone gets their say on the floor of the house, and you know all the different parts of the um, Conservative Party, in particular in this case, can have their say. Um, but a couple of days um, scrutiny in the Commons, I think the Lords will think actually this needs properly looking at. There are some important issues of principle here, and they will want to send those back to the Commons. But I don't think I think that they will think actually, you know, this is the government's policy and. Ultimately, therefore, the bill should get on the statute book and we'll see if it works at that point. And last night we got some crag. <laughs> always crag. Good. Constitutional always, reform. Always. Constitutional Reform and Governance Act. Is yes, that one about passing good. treaties? Always yeah. good to have some crag. Yeah, I, I mean, I think... The the Unleash the crag. Glad you, glad you explained that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think the interesting thing about that was just how much it highlighted how little control um, Parliament has over treaties. Um, that... You know, we've, we've entered a world post-Brexit where we're uh, entering into a lot more treaties and if you compare the say that our parliament has over whether a treaty the government wants to enter into becomes law 
to you know, almost any other country. We don't get a say at the beginning in setting a mandate for the negotiations. We don't get a say mm. at the end. The Lords can pass a, a motion saying, um, you know, we don't think we should um, ratify this treaty, and it has zero effect. Well, you remember that lengthy scrutiny of the trade and cooperation agreement? Well, indeed. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that was, that was something, <laughs> something to hold. <laughs> and just to go back to what you were saying, um, Adam, about the sort of um, Mariana's work and the misinformation and so on. Of course, immigration is one of, a, one of the subjects on which Rishi Sunak has been ticked off by the ONS for making misleading statements. Again, mm. I mean, would it be your argument that that's the system working that's that those corrections you know, are asked for by the ONS, or do you just think nobody notices and actually politicians will conclude, well, I don't mind being told off by Robert Chait? No, I think, I, think, I think people do notice, but the problem is the cost for, for, for kind of breaking the rules is, is not high enough to, it's like that old thing from social research about the, the penalty for not picking your kid up from nursery on time. Mm. It's like, if it's too low, people just treat it as a subsidised hour of childcare, exactly. So it's kind of, it's kind of like that again. Um, and I do think on the whole kind of misinformation thing, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm an optimist about the kind of generative AI flooding the political marketplace with fake videos because I think people are savvier than that and it won't move the dial. I think it's the old-fashioned misinformation that we've got to worry about. And also sometimes we as journalists are purveyors of that. I just keep thinking back to the Rishi Sunak Hammer video. Mm. I don't know if you remember that from yeah. last year when he was visiting some ju a jewellery workshop and there was a video where he was tapping something with the wrong side of a hammer. And I could see how this was going to play out. I was like, I suspect he's been told because there'd be some jeweler's thing that you hit the hammer that way. But of course, yeah. it, was, it, was, it was too late by then. So actually, they then get hoist. But is that being hoist by your own petard? If like, it's been used against you in the other direction? So I just think misinformation, like the old, old school misinformation and us just getting things wrong is, is a far bigger threat at this point in humanity than... Right. Although much kind of sexier, exciting AI stuff that people seem to be really worried about now. Even more to worry about. Thanks, Adam. Addition. Um, yeah. Okay, we're going to get to some questions uh, from the audience. I, through sign language, think we may have a, um, a microphone. We do. Kath Haddon has a microphone. I've got a question here. Oh, you're going to ask a question. Yeah, Kath Haddon from the IFG. I've got the microphone, so I'm going so to ask you're a in question. Charge. <laughs> um, How many experts are on this podcast? Yeah. <laughs> uh, apart from running a podcast, what are your top tips to experts in terms of navigating a general election campaign? What should they be doing? What shouldn't they be doing? Thanks very much. Should we take another couple of questions and ask them together? Oh, thinking time. Thinking this is time. what politicians do, isn't yeah. it? I'll take them in three. Thank you. <laughs> okay, Jill Rush from UK and a changing Europe. <laughs> I can go either way um, for the sake of balance. Um, so the flip side of Cass's question, um, the BBC made a bit of a mess of getting Boris Johnson to do an interview with Andrew Neil during the 2019 election. Jeremy Corbyn felt whatever he, uh, <laughs> he got the interview he want, wanted. I just wondered what uh, Paul Anand and Hannah thought the BBC needed to do better this time in terms of its coverage of the general election. OK, and one more. Maybe somebody doesn't come from one of our organisations. Somebody who's not an expert. <laughs> oh, no. We only Everyone's have an expert. I'm just looking out of the room now. Like, there's, no, there's no one else here from the IFS. It's safe, <laughs> safe from that. No? OK, right. Paul, why don't you kick off while I think about my answer? God. Um, <laughs> top tips for experts in the run-up to a general election. Um, well, uh, try and get things right uh, in the first place. Um, I think it's a good start. Um, uh, 
I mean, we're, well, what, what, what are we going to try and do? We're going to try and do some, you know, actually, where are we on the things that we know about? So what's happened since 2010? Really importantly, actually, how does that compare with other countries? Because I think um, it's very easy to look at what's happened here and say, well, what, what a complete mess the government's made. Well, actually, it's, if you make a comparison with other countries, yes, it doesn't look great, but it's not quite as bad as it looks by comparison with um, the sort of period up to... Um, up to 2008. Um, lots of choices about how much, to, um, so we, we're going to do quite a lot of work on Labour and Conservatives. We come under quite a lot of pressure to talk about SNP and Lib Dems and Greens and reform and so on, but actually you think very carefully about what resources you've got and uh, you know, it's actually really difficult to, um, uh, to, to do all of that with, uh, with, with what is generally most experts have a relatively small uh, level, um, uh, small level of uh, resource. Um, keep on top, keep to things that you're expert on, I think would probably be my number one um, uh, piece um, of advice. And, um, and don't, don't worry too much about saying the same thing time and time and time again, which I rather suspect I'm going to be doing when it comes to the question of, is there money for tax cuts? Um, you know, uh, how, how, how much money is there for after the election and so on? So th th those, those, are, those are my thoughts. Um, uh, those are my thoughts on that. And um, happily, I've already forgotten what Jill asked. <laughs> <laughs> What would um, the BBC do better? Why is the BBC so rubbish? What could the BBC do? We're just saving you from having a Well, clear, clear, clearly, clearly have more experts on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, just to advertise that Hannah is going to be on Question Time this week, following Anand a week or two ago and me a few weeks before that. So, you know, they are doing a... You know, they're, they're getting things right. They are getting more experts. Should we get you prepared and boo the fellow panellists? <laughs> just so you get used to the yeah, sound yeah, of you it. You could do an edition of Question Time with just the three of us. Right? God, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. Jesus. Yeah, as, as, as we run up to um, as, as, we, as, as, as we run up to the election, actually the expert factor could be on the BBC. There we are. That's what the BBC could do better. Top, top recommendation, excellent, Alan. So, what people should, so just from our experience, so our, our organisation is odd because we use academics and we try and get them to do things that are accessible. So the first rule for us always is clarity and using normal language. I remember during the referendum campaign. And the referendum campaign was a really weird time. We could go to a public thing, and you'd have 500 people in the room really wanting to engage. And we had a colleague on from the university, I won't mention, I won't mention the colleague's name, political scientist, who about 20 minutes in wanted to start talking about societal cleavages. And the audience just started giggling. <laughs> right. I mean, societal cleavages is a perfectly valid thing to say in the context of a political science seminar, okay? But he... He didn't learn, he just kept doing it. So it's about the language you use sometimes. It's about just expressing yourself in terms that your audience can grasp very, very easily. It's about avoiding normative terms. I've seen a couple of colleagues come a cropper during conversations about uh, Brexit by using the word should. You know, there are basic words you don't use. And the other thing that I found, and actually this got me a clap on question time about three years ago, is being able to just say, we don't know. You know, actually, whatever they're saying, they cannot possibly know that because no one knows the answer to that as yet. There isn't enough evidence. It's going to take some time. So beware anyone who is expressing a firm opinion about it. So they're probably the three. And I have to say, with the BBC, my, my BBC intake is quite often things like BBC Breakfast and Radio 5 Live. And I think they're superb on the news, actually. I think 5 Live in particular 
can be a bit bolder, I think, than some of your flagship news programs because they have a different sort of scrutiny, less mm. probably. Uh, and they're usually, uh, in the referendum and both elections we've had subsequently to it, they've, they've been quite creative and genuinely interesting. So sorry if that's just yes. fawning praise. But <laughs> I'm sure Adam's not averse to fawning praise. Um, I mean, in terms of advice to experts, my, this, is, this is advice uh, which I sort of, we try to take on for our, ourselves here and, and sometimes fail on, but so <laughs> passing on from, from our own learning. But the thing I would, I, and, and most experts don't do this, but sometimes the risk is, is don't forget about devolution. Um, there's too much discussion uh, which ends up being a discussion of actually what's going on in England and journalists sometimes, you know, put, come a cropper on this and, you know, I just think it's so annoying for people in the devolved uh, um, nations when, when that happens. So that's a, like a really sort of noddy thing really but something that, as I say, we sometimes get wrong and, and try not to. In terms of BBC, so many ideas. Um, I mean, one of the things I think has been really... Um, uh, you can Good. use your notepad now. You yeah, sorry, yes, okay, sorry, point taken. I mean, uh, so a positive and a negative. So this, the stuff I've really enjoyed from the BBC recently have been some of the podcasts and longer series looking in depth at some policy issues. Um, one of the things we do at the IFG uh, are, um, is a series of, um, we're doing a series of reports looking at what we call chronic policy problems. And it's basically just looking at why some things are just really hard to solve. And I just think in the run-up to the election, when you, we're going to get some kind of glib, high-level, you know, we've got an answer on this, actually helping educate people about why some things are just really difficult. And sometimes that's the politics, and sometimes, um, you know, it's just things to do with behaviour change or whatever it is. Um, so, you know, maybe that's a very good uh, um, series that the RFG can do for the BBC on, on policy problems. The other thing, I mean, the thing, the, feed, the more negative one, the feedback I um, have heard quite a lot recently, actually sort of unsolicited from people when, you know, for whatever reason they've heard I've been on the Today programme, is that some of the mainstream flagship news um, is just too binary. And the kind of, uh, the sense that everything is sort of always set up as, a, as, an, as an argument is obviously going to be a feature of an election year. But trying to find the other voices and bring those in, I think, um, is something which is uh, people would would bring people back to some of the people who've been drifting away from some of those. Do you want to defend the BBC? Uh, well, I will take those points on board and use the <laughs> smidgen of influence that I have to uh, get things in the right direction. Um, I, your, so the point about binariness, yeah, it's interesting when I was listening to the Today programme over Christmas and I'd been off for like a whole week by that point, which is quite rare, though I'm about to go on holiday for two weeks. Um, and it wasn't Nick Robinson, so for this is, but I wouldn't name who it was. And I just thought, oh my God, why, if you know the answer, why aren't you prime minister? And that was just after like six days of not being in the BBC bubble. And, and I thought actually, and I did We're all spend, guessing, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> and I did spend a bit of time then thinking about why had I thought that and why did I not think that before? And it's because I've immersed myself in a slightly different way of doing it. So the classic way of achieving accountability is to interrogate somebody from the opposing point of view and to assume that they're not telling you the truth or that they're wrong or they've missed something out, which is why those interviews are like that, because that's the classic model. But the newscast model is to have a chat with somebody to understand where they're coming from and to sort of interrogate what they're doing on, on its own merits in their mind rather than from the assumption that you're wrong or it's not right. Mm. And the other program I do, Antisocial, which is on Radio 4 on Friday lunchtimes, um, at very odd times of the year, it's not on all year, but what we've done there is, and it's about the culture wars, is 
and we have somebody from one side of the argument and somebody from the other side of the argument. Rather than pit themselves against each other, we're trying to get the two people to understand where they're coming from themselves. So I'll be asking them lots of questions to excavate where their views were formed and also to just understand the other person a lot more. So you can have the appearance of a binary argument, but it'd be much more about what's going on in that person's head on their own terms. In terms of experts, all that stuff is totally true. Just come to terms with the fact that what's in the news that day is what's in the news that day. And there's very little any of us can really do about that, <laughs> says the man who makes the news. But I mean, even I feel powerless in that sense. So just accept that what the news and what the country is talking about that day is this subject. And what you care about might be that subject, but that's the subject. And be, be a good communicator and just do it quickly. Like, <laughs> just, there's not very much time in the news. It's, a, it's just it's quick, quick, quick. Even podcasts, you still run out of time. Yep. Seamlessly bringing as us we, to wine o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> uh, are there any more questions? Anyone in the room? There's one here. Hi, Graham, former senior civil servant. Um, I wonder if, in the interest of balance, the experts on the panel could tell us what they think the benefits of Brexit have been. I think one of the big benefits of Brexit is it's shaken up. How, what our politics talks about and how our politics works, and sometimes in good ways. So I, for one, think is a fantastic outcome of Brexit that loads of red wall seats are now marginal. I mean, I think the best thing that the place I grew up in, Wakefield, could ever have done is become a marginal seat because it means people won't ignore it ever again and it will be contested. Uh, I think the fact that we have become aware of things like regional inequality that we could quite happily have been talking about in 2015 but weren't has been a good thing that, you know, I suppose... In my naiver moments, I think to myself, all right, Brexit is going to make the aggregate size of the British economy smaller than it would have been had we stayed in the single market in the customs union. But given the right political incentives, it might make it a slightly fairer one because we recognise very, very belatedly that these regional inequalities exist and they're pernicious. And they're pernicious in a way that counts to politicians. They make voters change their behaviour and vote against you because they've had enough of it. Maybe that will end up being a long-term benefit. I think I agree with that. I mean, it is... We we, we were discussing regional inequalities beforehand, but I think the the, the real change, I think, is this, is, it was a hell of a shock for the, um, for, for the established order, as, mm. as it were. And I think that will and has, to some extent, led to a, a, a reduction in the degree of just taking things for granted or taking people for granted, taking voters for granted, taking attitudes um, for granted. Um, but, you know, it clearly is the case that we have taken back control of some things. I mean, immigration being the obvious thing. I mean, this is something which government now absolutely has to take responsibility for. The reason that there were six or 700,000 people coming net coming into the country last year was because the government decided that there should be. I mean, they, they, you know, rather than because yeah. that happened to be the result of free movement within the European Union. So I think that actually really does bring a degree of responsibility and sovereignty and you know, there are no excuses back into, um, back into government. So, you know, as, as with all these things, there were trade-offs. I mean, Anand is absolutely right. We are, from an economic point of view, going to end up three or four or five percent worse off than we would have been, probably, if we'd stayed in. But from the point of view of control over some of our policies, yes, we, you know, there is some control that we have repatriated. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. I mean, I think 
that it's 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 refreshing that the constant refrain when 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 things are happening that we that people don't like for it not to be well it's the fault of the EU I mean it sometimes is you know with immigration is the fault of the French or whatever now but that sense in which actually it's it's made clearer what the decisions are that our politicians are actually making on our behalves and that that they, they can't just say it's the fault of the, the EU that this has to happen. Mm. The risk around that, of course, is they look for other people to blame. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think we have seen some of that in relation to the civil service, for example, that actually, you know, if we can't get a, a policy to have the effect that we want it to have, uh, maybe it's the fault of the civil servants not trying hard enough has been, you know, a, a bit of what we've moved into. But, or judges. Or judges. Or House of Lords. Speaking completely personally, the advantage of Brexit was that I learned so much about how the country functions, whether it's constitutionally, democratically, <laughs> parliamentarily. Um, the disadvantage is I put on more than a stone in Brussels. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. And built up a large collection of binders. Yes, many of which are still there. <laughs> because I had to leave when COVID started, literally what I could carry. And I prioritised my clothes over it's there. Like interesting Shame over on the binders. you. Shame on you. Oh. <laughs> History <laughs> left behind. Okay, well that stored, is, stored. It's that is all we have time for. Um, many thanks to all of you who are watching at home, to our brilliant audience here at the RFG, and to everyone who submitted a question. Sorry, we couldn't get to all of the questions you might have wanted to ask. Um, we are planning a special question time version of the podcast. Uh, so if you have any questions that you would like to hear us answer, um, just email them to podcasts at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. Uh, and we will have a look at those. So until then, many thanks to Adam Fleming for being our brilliant first guest. Thanks for having me. Um, it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from them. <laughs> See you next time. <laughs>